Hey, we are going to jump right into our Bible text today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. And if you didn't bring your Bible, we've got ushers who are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use today. They've got Bibles that you can have today. We started our church about three and a half years ago, and we've given away more than 700 Bibles at times just like these where someone's like, yeah, I'd like to have a Bible. Um, so if you need one, just wave at our ushers. If you don't have a Bible, put your name in the front of this one uh, and keep it with you. Uh, and begin to read it and come back and we'll help you study it. Because today in Acts chapter 2, we see what one Bible scholar calls the most critical shift in all of Scripture. Dr. John MacArthur, who's a pastor out in, uh, in Southern California, is one of the greatest New Testament scholars alive. And here's what he has to say about Acts chapter 2. Before we dig into the text today, I just want you to know how important it is from people who know the Bible really, really well. So here's what Dr. MacArthur says. The second chapter of Acts marks a turning point in the history of God's kingdom. A new phase of his redemptive plan unfolds as the church is born. In chapter 1, the disciples were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he comes. In chapter 1, the disciples were equipped. In chapter 2, they're empowered. In chapter 1, they were held back. In chapter 2, they're sent forth. In chapter 1, the Savior ascended. In chapter 2, the Spirit descends. The, promise of the, the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ given in chapter 1 come to fulfillment in chapter 2. So from Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Acts 1, there's one thing happening in Scripture. And then at Acts 2 till the end, there's something very different happen as God moves in a special, critical way. And as we study this year through the book of Acts, we come to the most important part, Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a verse, and we're actually going to stop and talk for a minute. And then we'll read through the rest of the text together. And here's what it says, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now let's just stop there for just a minute. If you haven't already, reach into your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes so you can follow along. Because it's important at this time that we stop and reset our mindset both for this message and for this series. Trying to figure out what God wants from us as people in this new year and trying to figure out what God wants from us as a church in this new year. We've leaned into this series called Difference Makers and today in Acts 2 we find ourselves on the day of Pentecost. Now Pentecost is a word that means 50th. It's actually a, it, it's, it's a number word, not a, not a word word. It's actually a number. Pentecost means 50th. And it was the name given to the first day of the Old Testament feast of weeks or of harvest. Think Thanksgiving. The feast of harvest, the feast of Pentecost, came at kind of the end of the harvest season, and it was kind of the big thank you to God that, that all the crops had been planted, that they'd come up, that there was going to be enough food for that year. Now this day, the day of Pentecost in Jewish history, always kicked off the major Jewish feast 50 days after the previous Jewish feast, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now let me connect you to Scripture past real quick. The Feast of Unleavened Bread always began the Sunday after Passover, which just also happened to be the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus rose from the dead the Sunday after Passover, which tells us if we kind of line up history with Jewish feast and New Testament history, we know that the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 was exactly 50 days after Jesus rose from the grave. Now I want to stop right there and ask you a question. What were you doing 50 days ago? Think about that for a minute. What were you doing 50 days ago? 
Today's January 25th, so back up 25 days in, uh, in December, or about December 7 is what we're talking about, 6 or 7. What were you doing 50 days ago? Because 50 days previous to Acts chapter 2, Jesus started the day in a grave. Now he is not only out of the grave, but scripture says he's ascended to heaven, and he's getting ready to give his church the greatest blessing that they've ever had. All of life changed in a matter of 50 days. I say that to say this. I don't know where you are today. But 50 days from now, your life could be different. You may just be walking out of literally the flames of a marriage or relationship that, is just, that has just crashed. 50 days from now, there's, there could be hope. You, you could be walking through one of the most difficult periods of your life emotionally. 50 days from now, there's hope. You could be walking away from a job you thought you'd have the rest of your life and you've made a bunch of purchases and life decisions based on that and now it's over. 50 days from now, there's hope. See, a lot can change in 50 days. And we see at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a lot is getting ready to change. Now, the day of Pentecost always looked back 50 days and celebrated the beginning of what God had provided. And the day of Pentecost always look forward to the entire fulfillment of God's blessing. But you need to understand these feasts were established as a picture of God's blessing on a physical harvest. These feasts were to basically say the, the first apple is starting to come on the tree. The, the first stalk of corn has just risen out of the ground. The first little bean sprout has come up. The first orange is forming on the orange tree. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated right as the very first part of the crop had come. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread said, if there's one, there's going to be more. Lord, thank you for what's to come. The Feast of Pentecost looked back at the entire harvest being done, and it said, wow, Lord, we trusted you a little bit. You gave a lot. Thanks for everything. And what God had established as a picture of a physical harvest now turned into the reality of God's blessing on this spiritual harvest. Because 50 days earlier, a man had risen from the dead. 50 years earlier, God said, here's my plan for the harvest of Christianity. That people are actually going to defeat death. That people are actually, they're going to live and die, but they're going to rise again. That people are actually going to take the worst thing that could happen to them, a physical death, and they're going to overcome it. And Jesus is just the first one on the tree. But there's a lot more coming. Jesus actually said about the harvest, the harvest is plentiful. Like, you don't have to worry. There's always a lot more spiritual blessing coming. But in the 50 days in between our last spiritual blessing and our next spiritual blessing, sometimes it's hard to figure out where God moved. And on Pentecost, God moved. Now, Scripture says on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. We've studied the last two weeks and said that it took an entire spiritual family. There was 120 of them to launch God's church. And every person in that church body was critically important to the vision. And we've said as our church births new vision and new ministry that it's going to take everyone to see it accomplished. And as we look at our church this year and say, what do we have coming? As, as we try to lean into God's church in our generation, what do we have coming? We've said our learning this year is going to be about a year of Jesus' church. We're going to just study the book of Acts this year at Journey Church International. 2015, from a learning perspective, we're going to study about Jesus' church. Now, what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is not to pass a test at the end of the year. The purpose of that is this. We believe that understanding Jesus' church helps us understand our place and our purpose within Jesus' church. 
My hope is that there is at least one Sunday a year where you come, not just because it's Sunday and you're supposed to come to church, but you actually come with the question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? God, how can I make a difference in this world? God, what can I do to help somebody else? We, we want to, as a church, figure out our place in the plan of God and our purpose for living at the time we live in the place we live. And we've said that a part of our plan organizationally as, as a church is that we believe it's time for JCI to build a building. And we think studying the book of Acts is going gonna, is gonna to help us kind of understand some key concept of this next step. The next step of our mission is to build a building. But you need to understand every step of our mission is to build a church. Like if, you, if you're looking at Acts for a blueprint of a building, you won't find one. They actually didn't have any buildings in the book of Acts. So we're not studying the book of Acts so we can learn how to build a building. We're studying the book of Acts because we want to learn how to build a church that impacts the world. However... We believe within the book of Acts, there's some information that can help us. So we've shown you as we've gone along some, just some, a little bit of work that our architects have done on our building, the schematic design that we've been presenting to the city of what we'd like our building to look like. We, we hand it out to hundreds of volunteers, kind of the interior of our building and ask them to ask questions and give us some feedback on how things were shaped and the size of things and where, where we should put what. And, and those were all tremendous. And there'll be a lot more of that. I've got this chair on stage because I said, you know, what, what's one thing we can do to get people excited for the building? So next Sunday, like we've ordered 250 of these like nice chairs to sit in. And these are so much more comfortable than what you're sitting in right now. Just, just so you could feel for a Sunday what it might be like to sit in church, not in a metal chair. I had this chair back in my prayer room this morning. I think I prayed the best prayer I've ever prayed in the history of our church. Just because my rear end was so comfortable. It was like, I, you know, I could just, I could pray for a while here. So next week, if you want to know, well, you know, give me some tangible stuff. You can come sit in a chair next week uh, and that'll be awesome. But more important than the building is the church that God wants us to become. And it's why we're learning the book of Acts, because we believe the book of Acts can give us both information and inspiration on how to build a strong church. We believe that the book of Acts can give us spiritual motivation and help us produce spiritual momentum in our church for our community as we study the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts isn't just a story of one church plant, it's a story of more than a dozen. And they all worked, and they all reached people, and they all changed the world at their specific time and their specific generation. So if we want to be a church that has impact in our community, building or no building, we need to study the book of Acts. And it all starts in Acts chapter 2. Where we started, let's continue now. Acts chapter 2, we'll start again in verse 1. And here's the story of the church coming together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, that is one of my favorite lines in all of the Bible. Because Peter could have given these people, I mean, dozens of reasons that they were not drunk, right? I mean, he could have said, listen, we're not drunk. We're disciples. He could have said, we're not, we're not drunk. We're close to Jesus. He could have said, we're, we're not drunk. We're trying to start a church. Instead, he said, we're not drunk. It's too early for that. that now, I don't, know, I don't know if at four or five or six o'clock, the answer would have been different. But at this point, I love his, I mean, I just love this thought. Men, we're not drunk. It's, it's too early for that. Verse 16, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, as we look at all that's happening in Acts chapter 2 as God's church is birthed, we see that the people of the first church, and you need to see this, they really believed, according to the words of Peter, that they were a chosen generation. They believed that God had picked them and God had picked their community and God had picked their time to do something special. They really believed that they were a chosen generation. In verses 17 through 21, we see an incredible description of God's church that was actually given 800 years earlier by the prophet Joel. The people came together and they said, what in the world is going on? And Peter said, here's what's going on. And he began to explain to them that they were living in a chosen generation and that God was doing what he promised long ago to do. And if we were to summarize verses 17 through 21, here's the description of God's church that Joel gave us. Peter said, Joel promised this was going to happen. It's happening right now. Here's a description of God's church that God will move through his spirit in the lives of his people of all ages, we might mention, to impact a generation that people might see God, hear about God, feel God, call on God, and be saved. Peter says this is what is happening. Joel said 800 years ago that there was going to come a time when God did this, that he would move through his spirit in the lives of his people of all ages. He said men, women, Young men, young women, children. He said God would move upon people of all ages so that he could impact a generation so that people might see God, so that they might hear about God, so that they might feel God, so they might call on God, and so that they might be saved. Peter said that's what's happening. And we look at them and say, man, that, that is awesome. And we get excited to study the book of Acts because this is what happens in the book of Acts. A chosen generation takes the message of God to the world. And yes, that is awesome. But you have to understand that is what's happening now too. God is continuing to move through his people, through his spirit for a generation that people might know God and be saved. The truth is that we just now happen to be 
the next, the current, the chosen generation to become God's church to this world in the last days. One of the most common questions that I've been asked in ministry the last 16 years about people who understand that I went to college and seminary and learned a little bit of the Bible is tell me about the end times. Tell me about the end times. Tell me what's going to happen in the last days. Tell me when the last days are going to come. And I always point back to Acts chapter 2 and I actually say, like, we're in the last days. The last days don't come later. The last days are now. As a matter of fact, according to the Apostle Peter, the last days started 2,000 years ago which means we actually live in, in the last er days. Like, it, like if 2,000 years ago was the last days, we're living in the last er days because nowhere do we learn that the race is, has been reset. And the reality is our generation is much closer to the finish line of what God wants to do in the course of history than Peter's generation was. And if you've ever been to a race and you've heard them in a mile race or a distance race when that last lap starts and they either ring a bell or they shoot a gun saying this is the last one, that went off in Acts chapter 2, bang, last lap. We just happened to be in a much later part of that last lap, but we are running the same race and we are now the chosen generation to become God's world and to become the church to God's world in these last days. And as we move closer to the finish line of whatever God has planned, and we try to carry out what was started in Acts chapter 2 individually and together as a church, we see some key components of God's church that I want to tell you about. But here's the cool thing about today's message and, and kind of the two ways that you can hear today's message. Today's message certainly applies to the church, a, a large group of people. But today's message applies to you because the church is made up of individuals. And the reality is, if we want to have a church that looks like the church in Acts chapter 2, we have to have people that look like the people in Acts chapter 2. You see, a, a church won't be any more spiritually mature than the people who go to that church. A church corporately won't be any more spiritually dynamic than the individuals who go to that church. So as you listen today of, about what we want our church to become, you need to hear today that this is what we want you to become. Because if we all become this together... This is the type of church a community will see. Now, as we look at the key components of God's church, there are four. One, we see that people should hear about how God is moving in a church. Look at verse 2 and verse 6. People should hear about what God is doing in a church. Let me say it this way. People should hear about what God is doing in your life. Look at verse 2. Suddenly a sound. Circle the word sound. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Look at verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together. You know, often it's people hearing about what God is doing in the life of someone or in the life of a church. It's, it's that that attracts them to what is going on. So what have people heard about what God is doing in your life this week? I want you to think about all the venues you have to talk about what God is doing in your life. I thought about all these kids on stage today and how easy it would be if our minds were trained to help people hear about what God is doing in our life. How easy it would be for every parent today to allow people to hear what God's doing just by taking a picture of their kids singing on stage and posting it on Facebook. Y'all post pictures of your kids playing sports on Facebook. Y'all post pictures of your kids doing their recitals on Facebook. <laughs> Y'all post pictures of your kids doing stuff wrong on Facebook. I, you know, I've seen that from time to time. What if we believed that it was our job 
to help people hear about what God's doing in our life. Who have you told what God's doing in your life this week? Have you said anything to your spouse? Have you said anything to your kids? Have you said anything to your neighbors? Have you said anything to your coworkers? Have you said anything to your boss? Have you said anything to your employees? Have you hung out with people outside? Does anyone know what's going on in your life? Because we see that God's church, people should hear about how God is moving in his church. It's why we love to celebrate what God is doing at our church. We're, every year in January, we release our annual report that lets people just see where their money went that they gave. But we want to use it really more than that to celebrate what God's doing in our church. So there's a link on your sermon notes that'll take you to this. It's not live till one o'clock because I know half of you will check out and just look at it the rest of the service. So I said, don't, don't put it up until after I'm done preaching because all the guys who are texting each other and playing Candy Crush will start looking at this um, instead. But inside this report, you're able to hear about what God did in our church this year. 217 spiritual decisions, 39 baptisms, 19 people from our church that served on the global mission field this year. A hundred, nearly $135,000 given away to missions and invested in missions through our offerings. You see, every now and then you have to stop and talk about what God is doing so people can hear about what God is doing, not just as a church, but as a Christian. What can you do this week to help someone hear what God is doing in your life because people should hear how God is moving in a church. Secondly, people should see how God is moving in a church. People should not only hear how, about God moving in a church, people should see how God moves in a church. Look at verse three. It says, they saw. Circle the word saw. They saw. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. I love this. They weren't even really able to describe what they saw. They saw what appeared to be. It's like I I can't really describe exactly what happened, but I just know I, I could see God's church doing something. What do people see in your life to let them know God is doing something in your life? How do you respond or react differently that lets people see God is doing something in your life? What do you commit to or what are you unwilling to commit to that allow people to see that God is doing something in your life? You know, probably two of my favorite memories as the pastor of our church. A few years ago, I was serving uh, at a local ministry, and we were passing out Thanksgiving dinners on the Saturday before Thanksgiving. I had some kids over there from our youth ministry, and we just spent a morning carrying turkeys and all the sides from a table in an auditorium to the cars of people. And after we got done, we helped vacuum the auditorium, and we were setting the chairs out, and we were putting all the tables away. And several of us had on our Journey Church International t-shirts. And a guy came up to me that worked for that ministry. Um, and he said, hey, do you, uh, do you, go, to that, do you go to that church on that, on that shirt? And I said, yeah, I do. Didn't say anything more than that. Because I, in case it was bad, I didn't want him to know I was a pastor. So I was like, yeah, you know, I, I do. Why? And he was like, man, people from that church, it seems like are here every time we have a major event. And there's no way our ministry could do what we do without people from your church showing up and helping us. So man, thank you. And I, I was so proud that people saw our church as being helpful in the community. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I was out getting my oil change and I had one of my journey church things on. And outside the oil change place, there was a little cold water sticker, meaning that their, you know, their place 
is a corporate sponsor of this ministry that serves hurting people in our community. And I walked in and I had the shirt on and the guy said the same thing. He said, hey, do you go to that church? And I said, yeah, I, I do. Um, and he said, isn't that church the corporate sponsor of the big golf tournament they do every year to raise tens of thousands of dollars to feed hungry kids in Lee Summit? And I said, yes, we are. And he said, man, our team plays in that every year and we've, we've seen your logo everywhere. That's cool that you're doing that. I'm so proud that there's people in the community that see our church as a force for good because people should see how God is moving in a church. Thirdly, people should recognize that something is happening in the lives of the people involved in God's church. As we read through Acts chapter 2, we see this recognition. After they'd heard a little bit of what was going on and after they'd seen a little bit of what was going on, there began to be this recognition that God was moving in the lives of these people. When is the last time somebody came up to you and clearly recognized God was doing something in your life? And maybe they reacted in in kind of different ways. Look at verses 12 and 13. The reactions to these recognitions are interesting. In verse 12, after seeing and hearing what was going on, it said, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, "What what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they, they've had too much wine. You know, it's interesting to see people recognizing God doing things in you and in the church that you go to. Some are amazed. I mean, there are some people who see what God has done in your life and they're amazed. They just, one, they never thought you would turn the corner. Or they never thought God could change someone as much as he changed you. And that's awesome when people recognize God in you that way. There's some people that recognize God in your church. Hey, don't you go to that church? I heard or saw y'all doing something. Man, that was great. And some people look at what God's doing in your life and they're amazed. Some are confused. So they were perplexed. They're like, what, what does this mean? There are some of you, your husband and wife is a little confused about what's going on in your heart spiritually because God has begun this thing in you and, and like, they're perplexed. Wondering why you want to go to church. Why you want to go to small group. Why you want to serve? Why why you're reading your Bible? Why you've quit doing this or why you've quit doing that? And they're just they're kind of confused about what's going on in your life. But confusion is a recognition that something's happening. Some people are indifferent. Some people just they just don't care one way or another. I've learned in our community, I believe the largest amount of people who don't go to church in our community are indifferent. They don't hate God, they're not opposed to God, they've not had a bad experience with church. They just got other things going on. And like church may or may not fit in. They just, it's not really that big a deal. And then there are some people who are opposed. Some of you have friends and coworkers. Some of you have people who live in your house. Some of you have people who sleep in your bed who are really opposed to what God's doing in your life. And it's become kind of a battle. You trying to follow God and then being opposed to what has happened. And even Acts chapter 2, they... People joking and making fun of them behind their back. Some of you post things on Facebook about what God is doing and your friends immediately come and start shooting it down or trying to make you look foolish. You say, man, we had great church service today and then one of your atheist friends will get on there and tell you that God doesn't even exist and then one of your bitter Christian friends will get on there and tell you that, you know, church shouldn't exist. And like you just got this opposition like coming against you. But all of that is recognition that God is doing something. But then we see number four, my favorite part of this text, this story, this narrative. We see that the church has to learn to speak a language that people need to hear. The church has to learn to speak a language that people need to hear. 
We need to learn to communicate in a way that helps people understand what God is doing and can do in their life because the crowd that needed God's church in Acts chapter 2 was pulled in by the language that the church was using. Massive crowd in Jerusalem, there to celebrate something else. God knew that he wanted their attention, their affection. God knew that he wanted a relationship with them, but God knew that he had to get their attention in some way. So God used a language that would pull people in to what was happening. As a matter of fact, according to verses 9 through 11, there are actually 15 specific languages that are mentioned that God's church used to get the attention of the people that needed to hear it in Acts chapter 1. They actually said to each other, do you, like, do, do you, do you hear this? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts to Jim, Cretans, Arabs. Here's what they said. We hear them proclaiming the wonders of God in our own language. We hear them talking about what God can do in our life in a language that draws us in. We hear them saying how great this God is and you've got my attention. And the truth is, if we care about our community and we care about our city, we must discover what language they'll listen to and we've got to figure out how to communicate it in a way that captures their attention. So we work with a ministry in the city called Pastor Serve. It's a ministry that serves hundreds of pastors and hundreds of churches all over our city. And they have done in-depth research on the people who live in Kansas City and in the community surrounding Kansas City. And after doing all this research, they basically said, here's the demographic of the hundred people that live closest to your front door in this almost always fits into a pretty good mesh point. I actually put it in your bulletin so that you could have this to keep in your truck, to put on your bathroom mirror, to, to put in your Bible, to, to put on your refrigerator with a magnet. Who are our neighbors and, and what do we need to learn? What language do we need to learn in, in order to have them lean into what God is doing at our church? Of the 100 people that live around you in Lee Summit, Jimmy Dodd gave these about five months ago at our church, 51% are on Facebook. 50% own a smartphone. 4% have cancer. 16% have no idea how they're going to pay their bills this month. 46 of them can't pay the minimum payment on their credit card this month. 16 are one month behind on their mortgage. 29 of them are upside down on their mortgage. 34 have been divorced. Seven struggle with a depression that's so severe that they've attempted suicide. Three are grieving the loss of a loved one. Seven are alcoholics. 14 have severe anxiety. Eight of them just lost their job. 80 of them don't attend church anywhere. And 60 of them don't know who Jesus is. You see, if, if we want to be a church in our generation, we've got to learn what language the people around us are speaking, and we have to learn how to speak into it. Which is why as we look at the additions our church could have with a permanent facility, you know, before we even began, we had a vision to speak into these things for hurting people. 
Before our church began, we decided we would do a ministry program called Celebrate Recovery that allows people from all over the community to come into basically almost not a church service, but a care group of people going through the same things that they could heal with and recover with. We've known since our church started that we wanted to do some type of financial peace university or some type of financial training offered free to people in our community because you don't have to read the list to understand that people need some financial help because the stress and strain on their life and their arguments and their discussions of, I can't pay the credit cards, I can't pay the mortgage, I can't do this, I just lost my job. That's a need in our community. We want to have a place that offers space to marriage and parenting and family counseling so the people from the community can come to some place that's just right near where they live and kind of learn how to get healthy and how to get healed in their marriage and parenting and family. We want to offer grief support for those people that are diagnosed with illnesses that bring extreme depression and for those who are going through the passing of a loved one. I've always had a dream to start what I've got written in my journal is Journey Bible Institute. Kind of a Bible training place that allows people to understand basic theology and Old Testament, New Testament overview in a way that outside of Sunday morning, people can kind of get trained on how to understand the Bible the way that it's written. People need a place that exists to tell them about Jesus. And people need a place to come to church. People need a sanctuary. And I'm not talking about a facility. I'm talking about a sanctuary. You know, Webster's Dictionary defines sanctuary as a place where someone or something is protected or given shelter. When you look at the etymology of that word, which means you look at the history of the word sanctuary, some of its very first uses ever that we see in writing are in the Old Testament referring to the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies as places that protected and gave shelter to the people of Israel. When God was with them, they were safe. And it's interesting how so many people refer to church auditoriums as, as sanctuaries. Whether or not it's a place they feel safe and protected or whether it's, it's just a term that we use without thinking about it, this thought of a sanctuary, a place where someone or something is protected or given shelter, has meant a lot to me through this process because the reality is there's been a lot of important sanctuaries in my life that I've never been grateful for until this process because I've just never thought of them through the lens of a chosen generation. You see, when I think back to the sanctuary that I was dedicated in as a young child, when I think back to the sanctuary that I was in in Wheelersburg, Ohio, southern Ohio, right on the Ohio River, looking across the Ohio River to Kentucky, where I first really heard about Jesus and gave my heart to Jesus. When I think back to the sanctuary in Chillicothe, Ohio, Brookside Church, where I was baptized at 11 on the stage by my Sunday school teacher, Dan Bennett. When I think about that church and others in Southern Ohio, where I went to youth group and every week my youth leader would tell me to stop doing the things that I was doing that were not good for a Christian to do. And they, they would remind me if I lived for Jesus, he blessed my life. When I look back at the sanctuary that I was married in, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Overland Park, Kansas, or the sanctuaries around the country that I was mentored in as I visited 12 churches over the course of about a year and a half and getting ready to launch this church, the sanctuary that I was ordained in, the sanctuary in Seoul, South Korea, in the basement of a church where God really birthed the vision in my heart to start our church, the sanctuary in the hills of Oakland, Maryland, 
little 50-seat sanctuary where I preached my grandmother's funeral a few years ago. All the sanctuaries where I've married so many of my friends and my family members in. When I look back at those sanctuaries, for the first time going through this process, I realized I didn't give anything to build any of them. Someone at some point in time saw a value in building a sanctuary for people who would come later and be spiritually protected and spiritually guided. Like all the great spiritual moments in my life, someone else paid for. Someone else laid the foundation for so that I might become the type of Christian that I am. And as I've reflected on that going through this process, it's like God has spoken into my heart and said, it's your turn now. A lot of people have come before you and they've laid the path for you. Now it's your generation's turn to return the favor. It's time to build something for the people in our community that will help people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. It can be our permanent legacy after all of us are gone and passed off this earth where people are still coming and hearing about Jesus and knowing him. Bernie Madoff, that Ponzi schemer who destroyed so many lives from prison, gave an interview, and he said, I left a legacy of shame. It's something I'll live with for the rest of my life. We have the opportunity now to leave a spiritual legacy, not of shame, but of generosity and a foresight for our community. We have the ability to to be the generation that years from now is driving by a church and we see a wedding getting out and we think those people today had a sanctuary to get married in because I gave. We get to be the generation now that the years from now is driving down 150 highway and we see a hearse and some cars with their flashing lights on pulling out behind it and we think, you know, God, today those people got to be ministered to in a sanctuary because I gave. We get to be the generation that when we see kids playing on the playgrounds or exiting Easter Sunday or having vacation Bible school, we see students moving in and out for youth ministry. We get to say, I got to be a part of that. And as we look at the legacy of a building for our church, there's three things as we look into Acts chapter 2 that we have to realize. One, I believe we are the chosen generation at this time for our community. Thank God there's a lot of churches building all over, but God for some reason has chosen us to put down roots here as well. Secondly, we need to do this. We're, we need to realize that we do this so that people will get saved. That's the end result of Joel's prophecy. That people hear about God and see God and feel God and learn about God. That people get close to God so that they might call on God so that they might be saved from a life without God. And just recently, number three, I'm learning because I struggled early in my spirit with, with why our founding generation as a church would have to would have to do so much more than everyone else who would come after us. And I kind of had a, you know, God, like, why can't you just send us more people? And God, you know, why it feels like this first generation, man, we've had to do everything. And God, it feels like we're carrying the load for what will come. And God spoke to me and said, Christian, you don't have to do this. You get to do this for the community. You don't have to do this, but you get to do this for the community. Those of you who are working in difficult areas where you've come in and been asked to improve something or turn something around or totally change the culture of something, and it's hard, you need to remember you don't have to, you get to. And because you and your team get to, you get to be the chosen generation to leave the legacy 
there. Our children were awesome leading worship on the stage today. And every Sunday at our church since January, they have, they've been building their building because they know our church is getting ready to build and they want to play a part. So every Sunday, our kids, who have been in our kids' ministry and our nursery, every Sunday they've been given a Lego to help build the church that we believe God's calling us to build. Come on over, guys. And they have brought us. See, it's already bigger than it was last hour. We're not going to be able to afford what these kids want to build because they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But these are our preschoolers and our nursery kids. And here's our J kids. Can y'all wave hi to everyone? Do you see your mom and dad's out there? Wave to your mom and dad. Yours aren't out there. They were in the first service. Um, you, guys, you guys can go. Thanks. But they, they've, been, they've been building churches. The, the little ones even understand that like, we need some cars for church. So like, they've got a car. They've got a dog and a little bunny. They've got a little guy, I think that's Pastor Ryan, hanging out up there. They got this little girl hanging out down here. That might be Danielle hanging out kind of in, in the back room. Um, they understand They understand that, it, that it's time to build, and, and they've, been, they've been building. They even built us a nice little car to get to church with. And then our J-Kids have been building. And man, they really challenged me, even this morning. Because as I went back and looked at their stuff, I just realized this is a cross. I don't know if that was here at 9 a.m. I went back and some of the kids were showing me the stuff. And they, uh, they said, Pastor Christian, do you know what that is? And I looked at, you know, all the blue and a couple different levels. And I thought, you know, if I was a kid, like, I'd want a swimming pool at my church. So I said, that's a, uh, that's a swimming pool. And they looked at me like I was the dumbest person alive. I said, No. They said, that's where we're going to baptize people. You see, there's, there's some little kids in our church right now. Some of those little kids that were just on the stage. You may build them a sanctuary that they meet Jesus in. You may build them a place that they're baptized in. I had a sixth grade girl who came up to me and said, Pastor Christian, if we build a church, can it be a church I can get married in. And I thought, God bless your father that you're already thinking of marriage. It's sixth grade. That's that my first thought. But I thought, yeah. Yeah, we're going to build a church that you can get married in. We're going to build a church that one day some of our teenagers are going to play on a sports team with some incredible athlete who can't stay off drugs and alcohol. And they're going to bring him to our youth group or her. And they're going to give their life to Jesus. And literally, not just a, a student, but like an entire team, an entire school will be shaped because some people gave. We're going to have a building that some, someone in here, our kids are going to fall in love with the wrong person. And they're going to be marching towards life together. And we're going to be thinking, man, if this young man or if this young lady doesn't find Jesus, they're going to have heartache for a long time. And they're going to come to our church and find Jesus. like... We can't even tell the spiritual stories that will happen once we build. But the kids know that a church is a building where people hang out, where cars come, where people get baptized, where there's crosses. And they probably won't say thank you after we're done. But one day it'll be their turn. There'll be a chosen generation in some community far from here 
And it'll be their turn to do what the Apostle Peter started, what so many others have done, and what we now get to lean into. So just to review what we're trying to do, we believe as a church it's time for us to build. And we've got a $4 million building project we are very quickly pressing into. We had a second meeting with the city this week that just went unbelievable. And we're really moving full steam ahead. The thing that will allow us to push on the accelerator or to stop and push on the brake is how much of that can raise. So we said as a church we're trying to raise a million dollars cash between now and August of 2016 to offset that $4 million. And while we need to raise more than a million dollars, somebody said, ideally, how much would you like to raise? And I said, $4 million. Uh, like, ideally, like as much as possible, right? The less debt, the better. But we know we've got to get to a million pledged to push down on the accelerator. Now, the good news, when we started this series on January 11th, I told you I wouldn't even start this series if I didn't think we could do it. We'd already had $812,000 pledged. We'd met with all our elders, all our staff, all our pastoral advisory team. We'd met with some friends of our ministry. We'd met with all our volunteers. And we said, if you guys don't think we should build, then we won't. But if you're in, we'll go to the church. And the reality is we need a $188,000 pledge. That's the final push to kind of get us where we need to go. So you say, well, how can I help? First, you need to know this. I've said this every week. If you can't give or you, you don't feel like you should give to this building, don't. Don't worry about it. Not everyone is going to give it in this season. Your season might come next time. Your season may have been last time. But I don't want anyone to feel any guilt. And if you're not in a place you can give right now, don't. No big deal. We'll get there with the people who at this time can help us get there. But if God's speaking to your heart and saying... I want to be a part of this generation. I believe God's called me to do it. What can you do? Four things. One, give a special gift in addition to your normal giving to help us build a building. We run our church based on what comes in on our tithes and offerings. For the first time last year, we went over a million dollars given in a church. You can see all that finance information in our annual report later. But we have a great, generous church. And because of that, we've been able to do great ministry. But in addition to what you normally give, we're asking you to pray about giving a gift to the building. We're asking you to give gener generously and give sacrificially. But we're asking, number four, specifically, that you'll pray about what you can give between now and August 1, 2016. And then that you would bring the first part of that and a pledge for the rest on Sunday, March 1st. We're calling that Commitment Sunday. And inside all of your bulletins, you can reach out and grab this little Difference Makers Commitment card just to see the mechanics of how it works. We had several of these that have started coming in. Some people have been praying and they know what God's calling them to do. Basically, we're asking you to hand in a card like this if God's called you to help us. That basically says, here's my total pledge. Just using round numbers. Christian, I'm going to try to give $1,000 above my normal giving to help you build a building. First fruit offering, I can give 100 of that or 50 of that by March 1. But then I'll keep giving a little bit at a time until I get there. And here's my name. Throw this in an offering envelope by March 1 or on March 1. And on March 1, we're done. We're going to see what God's called us to do, and we're going to either hit the gas or we're going to maybe regroup and hit the brake. But we, we feel like we're moving full steam ahead. But we know we're going to need your help. And then on March 8, we're having Celebration Sunday. On March 8, we're going to come, and we're going to say, basically, this is how much was pledged. This is how much was giving. We're anticipating the largest offering in the history of our church. And we're going to say we're moving full speed ahead. So you want to be here those two Sundays. But we believe that God has called us 
to be a chosen generation in not just these last days, but these last, laster days. As God keeps moving his kingdom towards the finish line, it's our turn to run a leg of that race now. And we're going to ask you to pray for us and to help us if God's calling you to do that. Let's pray together.